Hi everyone, welcome to the Sean Pepper Podcast. On this podcast, I seek out and speak with growth-minded humans, like yourselves. My job here is to connect with experts from a variety of fields and disciplines to explore how we develop ourselves and others in today's dynamic environments. I aim to provide you with digestible and actionable information you can use in your professional and personal life while exploring what it means to be human at work, at home, and online. If this episode or podcast is meaningful to you, please consider sharing with others or letting me know on Twitter or Instagram at Sean underscore Pepper. And as always, thank you for listening. Um, welcome to Sean's podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Tom Masterson. Tom Masterson is an entrepreneur focused on living better. His experience in life sciences, healthcare, and consumer marketplaces has led him to his current focus on family caregivers. Tom believes two things. There's no such thing as a zero-sum game and that you have to be good before you can be great. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Good to see you, man. (laughs) It's great to catch up again. For those people listening, can you explain how you ended up on this podcast and how a growth-minded attitude has shaped the relationships you build at work, at home, and online? Sure. I ended up on this podcast from way back. I don't, we haven't caught up in a long time, but way back wow. in the UBC days, which I now have to express, what am I coming up on now? 14 years out of UBC at this point. It's a long time ago. For anybody curious, like the life <laughs> science healthcare stuff, I came to that. Honestly, I grew up in a household with a father who's a doctor and a mom who's a nurse. So I studied genetics, assuming I'd be a doctor. And became a business person instead, which is, I think, becoming a bit more common of a path, but it still like surprises people. I don't know that, uh, that there were any uh, there was anybody else in my business class that could really talk about nucleotides and stuff like that with any great level of acuity, but I, I was certainly in that space. And I think that is a microcosm. And I, I may just be remembering the phrasing of your question wrong, but assuming it had something to do with like how you live through purpose and something like that, yeah. I'm, I, forgive me yeah. for blanking a little bit there. I've been quite uh, privileged and especially now it's good to acknowledge the privilege of being a straight white man. But in general, I'd say that privilege for me is translated into a certain apt- appetite and tolerance for certain risks and bold choices. And so I've never particularly been afraid to just follow what I felt was right in a given situation. When I was a kid, being a doctor felt right. And then when I got out into the real world and started to look at some of the things and the potential to do good at a larger scale, it's not something that you often have the opportunity to do as a physician. You might do research or something, and it might be a bit further down the road that your impact is realized. But my first job let me see some impact in in real time, and I got hooked on it. So I'd say if you were going to like sum me up in a bit of a way, it would be like uh, a ton of curiosity and generally trying to do the right thing will lead you into purpose-driven preoccupations and obsessions. Of course. Yeah. Your current venture is called Caregiver Support Technologies. How have you used that motivation and inspiration to start that? Sure. So there's multiple ways to approach this question, but what we do is we built a digital assistant named Blue, where pure goal is to make sure that family caregivers get support from their communities. So for example, if you're taking care of your parents or of your kids when they're facing some kind of medical condition, how can you be assured that one of your friends could pick up your other kids from school or somebody might drop off dinner or something like that at the end of a day or in real time? How do we actually facilitate that. And Blue's entire job is to facilitate that. So that's there's a whole lot more to like how the business plays out. But sure. I live very squarely in the space of supporting people who are supporting people. Yeah. And I came to that after having watched my mom serve as the primary caregiver for my grandfather. She and my aunt shared that responsibility. My mom's a nurse, as I said earlier on the podcast. So yeah. she took lot of the brunt of that because everybody assumed she could. And what that process illuminated to me was that caregiving itself is way less medical and far more social than I ever gave gave it credit for. And my personal experience living through that, I was living in Boston for the first part of it. And then I moved back to Vancouver closer to them. Regardless of whether I was 5,000 kilometers away or like a five minute walk away, I sucked. Like my mom did everything and I would find out three days later, something I could have done to help her out. And it was this, this was the broken part of like how much isolation 
mm-hmm. plays into this, that even my mom, who was medically trained, had resources at her disposal, was already retired, had her time, how she could struggle through that was completely jarring to me. And that process repeats itself ad nauseum, basically every time somebody gets sick, when somebody's taking care of them or they're taking care of themselves. We've built a lot of infrastructure from a society point of view that inhibits the natural response of supporting that person. So we're trying to fix that. That's awesome. I can actually speak to this myself too. When my grandparents got sick, my mom was the caregiver for both of them because she is a care aide. So she helps people in the later stages of their lives. She had the expertise in the the area and the field that she was going to take that on just to make sure that they could have the quality of life and give back. And it was overwhelming. She moved in with my grandparents, was like, stay in as well. Oh, wow. So your mom was a professional care aide and then took on the mantle of family caregiver as well? Yes. So that's fascinating because to me, that's the, that's even more tuned into like the problem that I think exists, that we at our company think exists, that proves the point that your mom was better trained for that than my mom was. Uh, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. My mom was an operating... She was an operating room nurse. She's a special person. What she does and how she views death and her spirituality around that allows her to be so supportive and giving and somehow find a way to still smile at the end of the day. And I really respect that about her. Those are often the people that are so in tune that they don't ask for help easily at all. Who did she lean on in that process? I remember her feeling trapped inside for 20 hours at a time and not being able to get a break. And it was extremely difficult because she felt like she could do it. She Mm -hmm. knew that she had expertise. And who do you call to come and relieve you? One of the things that I emotionally connected with was the three-part series that you published on LinkedIn and Medium. The first one was survival. The second one was careers. And the third one was culture. So what's funny about that is that it was written in a pre-COVID era. So it's long enough ago that the world feels completely different. But I think actually something I'm proud about with that series is that it's actually stood up in the face of what COVID's all about. In fact, I consider COVID to be the canary in the coal mine for this kind of stuff. We're starting to really see what's going on um, in vivid detail. In terms of how I think about the caregiving space, a very common misconception about caregiving is that it has to do with caring for the elderly and people's parents. The moment you say caregiver, caregiving, they think of dementia and Alzheimer's and things to do with Parkinson's, things to do with advanced age. But what I talk about in terms of survival is that, in fact, people are living longer across the spectrum of age and across the spectrum of disease. For example, if you went on, uh, I was just reading the annual report for Canuck Place this morning, the Children's Hospice in Cooper. The average duration of stay for a child in Canuck Place is seven years that they're on and off in that space. I would posit that any of those children 50 years ago probably didn't make it beyond year one. Yeah. Uh, And the implication of that is that at this current moment in time, we are reaping the benefit, but also the pitfalls of having people survive serious illness and injury. Mm -hmm. And in that, like, if my grandmother on my mom's side had also lived longer through ovarian cancer, her family would have had to really pick up the slack and do a lot. So there's quite a bit of extra work that's being foisted upon what is now a smaller generation than like the baby boomers where there were so many siblings to, to lean on, whereas now a lot of people are stopping at one kid and there's a yeah. lot less work to go around. So that was a survival piece to really unpack. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot more caregiving to be done per person in particular at this point in time than ever before. That's one thing I believe very strongly. In terms of careers, this is an interesting one in the face of COVID, but Typically, the career progression, especially in the business side of things, which I would say dominates most of of the career paths, typically it involves you moving away from home, often to a large city and taking on endless amounts of work that really know no bounds in terms of time or space. And so that creates a whole lot of extra complications around what used to be described as a village response. It takes right. a village. Yeah. I think that it takes a village. Is, it's yes right now, in my opinion. Like There's certainly moments where people rally around you, but there's no sustained, prolonged grassroots response around family caregivers, as far as I'm concerned. There are certain exceptions to that rule, but especially around certain indications and certain problems, I think a big piece of it has to do with careers, and careers have driven a lot of the shapes of how we live in terms of what choices do we make of urban versus rural? What do our schedules look like? 
these types of things play into making it much harder for a caregiver to access support. And not only that, for somebody like me who might care about what's going on and want to actually help out, but I live in Boston as I did at one point, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I went there for my career and my friends at home who are struggling back then in 2011, absolutely nothing that could have been done from Boston, aside from maybe chipping in on a GoFundMe campaign or something. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's very typical right now. I've participated in GoFundMes for people when something happens and they're going to have to live somewhere or have a hotel or they're going to have to perform surgery and be off work. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because I always make sure that I have 10% of whatever I make or my income for tithing and and giving away. That 10%, unfortunately, is 10%. So at a certain point, there's things that I have to say no to. I I don't want to say no, but I think people really do start to feel, I don't know how to say this, like a compassion burnout. You don't want to really lean into caring because there's a gap between them caring more and then feeling guilty for not being able to to help in more ways. Do you see that or what what are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah. I think that's really poignant observation in that I think the issue is how much people feel on equal footing. And what I mean by that is if you're supporting someone who's going through a problem like this, that person, just the mental exercise for a second, only has so much bandwidth to figure out who's going to help them the next time. And if you gave me a ride on Monday and I knew I could count on you, it's probably pretty likely as guilty as I'm going to feel that I'm going to ask you again because you've demonstrated that you're going to help out. And right now, caregivers are so overwhelmed that they end up leaning on the same five people, maybe. When there are legitimately 100 people who would do what you just did, if only they got the text. If only you sent me the text at exactly the right time when I was free and I had a car available and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I would 100% drive you to the doctor. But nothing is doing that at scale in a really efficient way. And so you're totally right. And so a big piece of like what we're trying to accomplish is to not only make it easy to say yes, but make it super easy to say no. Take out all the guilt in that particular interaction where I miss sports sporting events. So I always use this as an example. Like I've got tickets to the game. And then my friend who's dealing with cancer texts me and says, hey, can you pick up some groceries? I'm like, Oh, shit. Like, I would like to go do that for you, but I also want to like keep this thing that I've been looking forward to for a really long time. If I knew that there were 70 other people on that system that were also going to have an opportunity to pick up the groceries, I'm not going to worry too much. I'm not going to worry too much because odds are somebody's going to be able to do this for this person. And we haven't had that to date, which sort of plays into the third pillar of that set of articles, which is around culture. And the culture that dominates Western culture today anyway, it's been built on the back of social media. And social media fosters uh, a system that favors connectivity over intimacy. And it's really changed a ton of how we interact with each other. You think you know about what's going on in your friend's life. You only really see the A plus moments. And then the other piece is if I send you a message and you don't respond, I don't even think that's weird anymore. (laughs) That is so strange, Sean. Like how weird is that? That if I send you a note, think about go back like when we were kids or something. I send you a note and you don't get back to me. Something is wrong. And nowadays, if I send you a note and you don't get back to me, oh, Sean must be dizzy. Eh, Whatever. It melts my brain every day. I try to be very responsive. So I'm not the right person to look at this objectively. But my goodness, like how weird is it that like a check mark or like a thumbs up or an LOL can end a conversation? That is so weird. We need to break that back down a little bit because otherwise when you are one of the 40 people on the day that everybody finds out about maybe way more than 40, the day everybody finds out that Steve's kid needs a liver transplant, everybody texts Steve. Yeah, That is the norm right now. And then Um, you don't hear back for that 100%. I'm the first person that like, as soon as I see it, I'm texting. And and that's got to be so overwhelming for those people receiving that all of a sudden out of left field sometimes. And, And just because you don't communicate with somebody doesn't mean that your connection is any weaker. We haven't connected for... I don't even know how long we're still connected enjoying this conversation right now. And so it makes it really difficult. I think one, in terms of you haven't been part of my life and now you are, and and I don't know how that 
negotiation works in terms of communication, but two, also like, how do I reach out for help if I also am not the person that has been communicating with, with you on a frequent basis? And some people are good communicators. I'm shit. If I'm not calling you <laughs> and uh, talking to you in person, you will receive a one line or two line text from me. And that will be it. I am that person that you just described. And that's just because I just don't find the same level of connection when it's not over video or over voice. I, I, I find things can get mis- misconstrued. So yeah, I completely understand that problem. And, and yeah, it's fascinating that you're trying to tackle it. We're all that like, we're yeah. all that person now. And we just, I don't think we've fully taken a step back to realize how much even the person who's really good that we consider to be really good right now if you went back 30 years that mm-hmm. person would be like the worst person to deal with as a friend i like i think fundamentally we've moved that far that we're like a couple standard deviations over in terms of like how much less intimate we are yeah. i really truly believe that like, when i was growing up and maybe and i lived right in the city did you know your neighbors did you know your neighbors when you were Absolutely. growing up Everybody. Do you know your neighbors now? Yes, actually, but one, I live in Victoria. Yeah. Oh, you're in Victoria. Okay, yeah, so that's well, a little yeah. bit different. That's part of the reason I moved to Victoria, but I, I get your well, point, though. But I think if you think about things in terms of culture, like I would say Vancouver trails Toronto by five, 10 years, Toronto trails New York by five years. If you go for it, if you go to New York, people don't know each other in, no. their, in their city. Like it's no. your friends and you don't know anybody else that lives around you. Okay. I think that is so strange. It is emblematic of the shift that's occurred in our communication norms. And that communication shift has completely crippled our ability to actually provide intimate support around somebody who needs it. Like you don't run into your friend at Amazon, like to find out how they're doing. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah, for sure. I I don't know. That's like central to my thesis is how. Yeah, no, it's a great. And I really agree with it. In so many ways we've utilized technology. So I talk about this all the time. So my listeners are going to probably get annoyed with hearing it over again, but technology is a tool, right? Like your utilization of using it as a tool and being intentional with understanding what the technology is, is it providing you opportunities to do and being intentional with what things it takes away. And that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why I don't uh, text that much, actually. I don't want to start that type of conversation. I don't want to be part of that back and forth via text. I understand that some people are busy and that I'm not in love with that medium in terms of forming deeper connection. I don't think it does. You can't tell body language, posture, all those mm-hmm. nonverbal cues. And most of my friends would say that they don't hear from you very much. I think we're in the age of starting to really think about the channel, maybe even more than the content is, yeah. the, is my, the communication channel you choose to talk to each other, the venue through which you interact with a business as a consumer. Do you prefer the brick and mortar experience, the Amazon experience? There's a lot that the channel you choose says that is independent of the message that you actually choose to put through that channel. If an advertiser is on parlor versus Instagram, what does that tell you? There's a lot of stuff that people, an ad in the New York times versus an ad in, you know, playboy magazine. It's like totally different, even though the medium is the same, the channel makes a huge difference. When you said channel, I I thought of the business model canvas or lean canvas. Have you ever Mm -hmm. used that to start any of your ventures? I typically just, write a, a business plan. Yeah. I think the business model canvas is good as a framework, especially if it's not something you think about all the time. And I think a lot of the best entrepreneurs never thought about business that when they were starting what they were doing. I've been trained enough to like sort of know. And so I end up writing, whenever I'm thinking about starting a business, I write a plan. A lot of it is empty and like question marks, but it's 20 pages whenever I write one. I know that if you look up, there's a really great entrepreneur. Her name is Alexa Von Tobel. She started a company called LearnVest a long time ago. It taught people like basically trying to scale financial planners across the world. Cool. Um, her like big thing that's repeated on all of her bios is that she wrote a 75-page business plan before she even started. Before she put one ounce of like actual operational effort in, she wrote 75 pages. So she captured all of her ideas and didn't have to think strategically on the fly because she'd already weighed out all the possible permutations of how it would play out. I love the the variance in this. I speak to entrepreneurs all the time. I define myself as an educator, an entrepreneur, and a like life enthusiast. And this idea that I, I don't think an educator can sit in silo in education. I think that we have to know where our students are going to be outputting to. If they're when that once they turn 18, what those opportunities are going to look like or or how the world's changing. And I think you can become really insular in education. And so I find it fascinating. There's all this stuff about 30 days and MVPs. And and then there's also people that are successful on the complete opposite side of that and writing long big business plans and playing Mm -hmm. the long game. It's just fascinating just to see the journeys that entrepreneurs take up the mountain. 
Oh, yeah. Like most things in life, there is no such thing as a right answer. Totally. Um, For sure. And so long as you can play to your strengths and know your weaknesses at the same time, like a canvas is a great way to find out some of those things that you realize if you were never an entrepreneur before and suddenly you start going through the section where it's asking you about marketing or, or accounting or something and you go, wait, I have to set all that up. I didn't think about that. I just wanted to like make widgets. I, I did some design work. I found immensely helpful working with creative. So people that are not in the business world, but don't, yeah. you're trying to get them to understand maybe a design plan or like the channels that they're communicating to, but they don't see the rest of the piece and you got to communicate that. I, f- I found it really helpful. Along those lines of being able to you take risks and be growth minded. Was that something that was instilled in your childhood? Like how did that influence your work or? No, that's maybe that's not fair. I would say if anything, I was sheltered again, I'm quite privileged. It's come out like multiple times in this conversation, but what I did have typically was a good amount of support. So when I wanted to try something new, even if it was in a low risk environment, yeah. I typically had the support of my parents. Like, really, it depends on your parents, I think, more than anybody else. For sure. I typically had their support in doing that. So I tried a ton of stuff as a kid. Um, <laughs> and a part of what, what, what kind of stuff? Just out of curiosity, was there something oh. that people would find hilarious that might not know that about you? And that when you share this, that's, this would be fun? Oh, yeah. There's tons of stuff that's hilarious. For, for anybody who can't see, the, if there's no video or anything, I'm like a six foot three, 250 pound rugby player is how you would describe me looking at me like, sure. like, a, like a thick Joe Rogan, not visibly. Too. <laughs> so when I grew up, my like big hobbies, I was like, I was a fat kid. So I didn't play a lot of sports early and rugby really turned me around and gave me a lot of confidence. And around the same time, thankfully, I also was exposed to and took up playing the tuba. So by the time I got into grade 12, I was in the provincial honor band to play the tuba and the assistant captain on the rugby team at the same time. I love it. A really weird combination. I made a lot of pottery as a kid to throw pots on a wheel and everything. So I was really into that. I was always a good student in terms of sciences and stuff in particular. Uh, That was my bag. And as a youngster, again, repeating the fat kid part, I actually was a competitive barbecue chef for a really long time. How do you become a competitive barbecue chef? Is it something that is like competition, like sm- like smoking competition? What are we, what are we yeah, talking about? That's what we're yeah, talking about. You're, you're pulling the smoker out. You got the oil barrel. You're making <laughs> oh, yeah. it. I love right. it. Yeah, that's oh, right. So my it. My cousin, on my mom's first cousin, so my second cousin, Ron, he took a class in Calgary and he started his own team based on having done this class. And he came out to BC and he did a contest there. We all came as a family to support him. And as a fat kid, I had one taste of pork shoulder and I went, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, I got to do this. I got to learn how to do this. And so I asked Ron if he would let me come and cook with him. And after a couple of years, like I came the first time, just washed dishes and helped out where I could because I For was sure. like, well, I was 12. Of course, yeah. And, but after a couple of years, we started to do really well. So Ron is like a creative genius. He's a communications guy. He can write like he can tell a story like nobody I've met really. And Ron is like the best hobby chef you've ever met in your life. He's just one of those dudes. Never really had anybody teach him formally what to do, but is just so creative and goes for it. Love it. Um, and I was the guy that like conquered his ADD. Jokingly, not to take anything away from people who actually suffer from ADD, but effectively my job was to manage Ron. I was a good cook in my own respect, but I got him to actually do things in a repeatable way. And we started to win. And we actually ended up winning the Canadian Nationals in 2004 and Oregon State in 2002. I think those were the two big ones that we won. So yeah, I was a national barbecue champion by the time I was done first year university. So if I'm looking outside your place right now, have you got like a anything on the on a trailer that you're pulling around to these things anymore? Or did that that happy fade out? Or but once I got into university, so we never were the ones that had the big rig. We use these like they're called Weber Smoky Mountain Cookers. Shout out to Weber advertising dollars for you. <laughs> they look like little R two D two units, but pure black. Like a, if Darth Vader had an R two D two, that's basically what these things look like. Awesome. And and we would win contests on those, and they're a couple hundred <laughs> bucks to buy one of those. And you don't need the big rig. I think that's actually a valuable lesson in entrepreneurship too. You don't need the biggest, most studly product to win you need to like really have mastery over the tool you're using and we got really good on those units and 
why would we go use a, a gigantic rig when we knew how to use these little bullets? I think like that, that nugget in itself, it w- would provide a 10 X value for anybody that like just took that and applied it to different contexts. A lot of the time we don't actually look at what the tool is doing or think about a tool that we're using and then thinking about other contexts, we might be able to use that yeah. process or that software or that piece for other things. And so we can, mm-hmm. especially entrepreneurs, I've seen this happen a million times. They end up in software hell. They haven't prioritized how they're going to use the tool. They've just prioritized that they need the tool. I think that's a really important piece yeah. that you've just said. They um, call it a tech stack, not like a tech smear. Exactly. It should be a purpose-built there, kind of thing. There should thing. be some integration along the way. Yeah, education is a perfect example of that. Principles get pitched by ed tech companies who don't necessarily understand the technology, but understands the problem that it solves. So that all the ed tech salesperson has to do is say that it solves this problem. So then the principal uses it in that case to solve that one problem, which then creates a thousand more problems because there's not <laughs> enough time to train staff and other things. So what would be one thing, we covered this, but what would be one thing that you wish people outside of your industry or field knew or understood, but that they really just can't grasp? Yeah, the big one, we, 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 I touched yeah. on it earlier, but it's yeah. just that caregiving does not equal elder care. That's the big one to me. And I think there's a really rational, the reason why people believe that is it makes total sense. There's a lot of people who are old that need our support. And the other piece that I think people don't quite realize is one of the biggest research players in this space that publishes all the data is the AARP in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a totally unintentional, they do great work. They put out great data and the whole caregiving space should be eternally grateful to the AARP, but it's mostly focused on caring for the elderly because that's their constituent base. There's it's also time. probably had something to do with research dollars, right? I think if you're looking at where you can look at number like this comes back to an idea of quantitative versus qualitative if you're looking at the quantitative number and you're trying to get support or funding where is the most amount of impact quote unquote going to be and so then it ends up blinding there so interesting that you would say that though because i'd say right now we're currently in an era where storytelling is almost trumping data and it's a really interesting moment if you look at the stock market like GameStop (laughs) is super obvious right like that one was like Storytelling, not based on their metrics, but even Tesla, like mm-hmm. you'd have to get everything perfect for Tesla to actually merit its valuation to just based on the numbers. One thing that happens in nonprofit fundraising really often is that the storytelling doesn't necessarily reflect what the underlying operations are of the organization itself. And one really common example that happens a lot, and people are catching on to this now, bullshit detectors are at an all-time high for people. Like a, a general cancer nonprofit a lot of them advertise, like most of their materials feature kids with cancer. And then most of their funds go to adults with cancer because there are more adults with cancer. But like when you're raising all your money with the pictures of the little bald kid, there's something inherently dishonest about that. It's the storytelling around that, not the data. That's a philosophical situation, right? Even though it's for good, it's still misleading information. Right. At its core, it's virtuous. And probably the ends in many ways do justify the means. But at the end of the day, when most of your money goes to adults and most of your advertising has kids on it, there's something really fishy about that. And I think that just speaks to the the power of the story over the power of the numbers that we live Mm -hmm. in right now. This is a big reason why I think philosophically, I think philosophers will become very important. Like this idea of actually making philosophical, like these philosophical decisions as we, so I have this idea of work and you mentioned and you touched on work being busier and busier and also like automating, like we're automating all of the labor positions and we're automating all the way up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And what happens is you automate up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, you come to these philosophical divisions. This idea of automated cars is the perfect one that, uh, I mean, always comes up. I'm sure you've heard it. Most people in the tech space have, but you have a a car. It's a self-driving car. It's going along the road. It sees two kids and there's three kids in the car. Does it swerve off or does it hit the kids? And it's like the train experiment. Yeah. What's it called? Yeah, I can't remember what what, it's called, but essentially those, as you move up and you start to automate things, you have to think in these high really complex. Do you not market and then get no money and then not save lives? All of these things become more and more, more and more complex. And I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying, but I'm just, I'm just speaking to this idea of as we automate things, these, the level of decision-making and the cognitive dissonance that needs to happen is massive. So two things I'll say to that is that we recently got a video testimonial from uh, one of the families that we support uh, Mm -hmm. bum with cancer. And I showed it to the engineers on the team and 
I sit here thinking we're all living and breathing this stuff every day. And one of the engineers goes, it's so good to see this because sometimes I forget who I'm coding for. Like I'm just sitting there in the bubble, the mind bubble of writing code. And I forget that there's literally a family with a kid with cancer on the other end of this code. And he's like, it was so important for me to see that because it like reset me a little bit to get that really intimate look. And so then the next question that I would ask you actually is like, what fields do you think you'd steer your kids into like for an education? What would you say would be the most valuable major for your kid to pick up when they grow up? Do you have a sense of that? I don't necessarily have a sense of value. So I like your parents' piece. And I ask all these questions. I'm I'm selfishly asking these questions as well. Uh But I think that it's important for kids to have variety. I think it's important for them to learn to experiment. I think it's important for them to try things and persevere and then decide if it works for them or if it doesn't. Like we mentioned before, I I don't think there's one way up a mountain. But I do think that there's certain skills or attributes or characters or values or however you want to say it uh, that you can instill in your children that then will lead them towards success no matter what the industry. So I I don't necessarily, I think it's a value thing and being really intentional. Things like that are (laughs) the kind of fluffy, that fluffy stuff, I think is more and more important. Honestly, what things do you want out of life and what's your goal and what is, what does success mean? And we'll get to that a little bit later in in, in the podcast. It's one of the questions at the end, this qualitative measuring of success, because quantitatively, sure, quantitatively, how we've measured success in the past has led to miserable people. This is an intuitive feeling, but I know I look at, sometimes I look at TED Talk audiences. So the people that go to TED are the most sure. kind of higher, high, highest in the, and then you look out at the audience and their faces all look miserable. And I don't think that they're, <laughs> I, I don't know what I've just, I've, I've just, uh, anybody go to a video and, and have a look. And so they're in what should be the most like incredible experience. And yet they're so brilliant intellectually that they're trying to take it in and decipher and pick apart the information. And and that's really what makes quantitative success and more money and scaling businesses and all of that. But that doesn't necessarily make you feel qualitatively assured. And so, it's really interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I, it's, it's funny to think about how grumpy the folks at Davos might be. But the thing that I find interesting is I've been quite grateful for what was an accidental choice to have gone into genetics because we've been living in the data and in your words, I'd say like quantitative first era for the last little while. So as a generalist, I've been quite thankful to have the backbone of my education to be something like quite quantitative. I think that if we fast forward 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I think the backbone you want is qualitative. And I think that's the really interesting piece is like everybody currently is advocating STEM, going to STEM. I would send my kids into like anthropology, sociology. Like I would push them. I'm a genetics and business school guy. And I'd be like, go study what makes humans human. And then the proliferation of no code software building and everything like th- there's a lot of value in having a STEM education. Yeah. And I hope that a big piece, I think medicine has been struggling with this for a while is like, how do we embed empathy into what is a, like a not necessarily empathetic pr- profession all the time? Of course. And they've struggled mightily in medicine. And I think the struggle is becoming quite apparent in computer science and any other version of science too. Yeah. Because I, I think about the surgeon, right? You want somebody who is quantitatively going to be precise and you also want somebody that cares about you, but w- which one would you prefer? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I want the guy that has pre- precision, who has the track record, record of the quantitative I've never killed anybody I don't want somebody going it feels like today so I I get the yeah I get that but on the flip side you also have doctors where people get no bedside manner and then so it doesn't matter that they're feeling better or they're on a recovery their actual mental or emotional status is terrible and yeah it's interesting especially in healthcare yeah yeah I think you're right you want the most competent person holding the scalpel but I think in the future, the most competent person might have a dot AI after their name. Like I, I, I'm I not sure that, that actually, gonna, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that we're going to be forever in an era where we have some, I think the, the narrative a lot of people call is like a demigod in a white coat. That's how a lot of surgeons and I, with all due respect, I have many great friends of sur- who are surgeons. My dad is a surgeon. A lot of them, they need to check themselves a little bit because they're, I, I don't know. It's, it creates really terrible experiences for a lot of 
people. Yes. Uh, anyway, yeah. no. <laughs> no, but sidebar, no, but <laughs> but it's important because that their whole, but again, their mistakes are are like they, that's a lot of pressure, and so qu- quantitative that part of the brain needs yeah. to be there, and it wouldn't they wouldn't be successful if it wasn't. Yeah. I, I get that. There's a ton of pressure. Maybe we'll shift a little bit in personal life. So we talked a little bit about your childhood. I mm-hmm. love the barbecue story. Uh, you have a partner currently. And then, so how do you guys set boundaries between home and work? So entrepreneurs always struggle with this, trying to figure out and define times. Go about doing that. My partner, Natalie, and I are in a very funny situation. Funny is a funny word for it. We have been doing a long distance relationship between Vancouver and New York for the past couple of years. And interestingly, as an entrepreneur, and she works um, in finance, not quite a Wall Street job, but Wall Street adjacent. What it actually has done for us is in some ways quite healthy from a work point of view in that there's a lot of freedom to invest a ton of time in your work because the other person isn't actually there physically. It creates a whole lot of other problems. But I think that actually we've been pretty fortunate from a work boundary point of view because we don't really have to be that considerate of each other in that space. Now, I also don't worry about it when we get into the same space because we're both intimately familiar with each other's world. And so it's been quite supportive. I don't know what else to say about the boundary piece, but it's been quite an adventure to be an entrepreneur in a long distance relationship. Kind of works. It's like an interesting, as long as you're mentally have the fortitude to be away from your partner that long and emotionally stable enough, it's okay. The pandemic has made it very interesting because there's just no chance to go see each other yes, whenever that's course. going on. But yeah, we've managed to get our way through it pretty well. So long distance relationship, there's probably people that listen to this podcast that have a long distance relationship. Like how do you guys go about using Zoom or other things to try to reconnect? Do you set up a date night on Monday? What does your process look like for that? It's more ad hoc than a process. But one of the fundamental pieces that we got right was to just these channels take away a lot of the nuance in your communication if you're texting all day or if you're even on a video call. So we really strongly just agreed that you should assume the other person means no harm to you. (laughs) Misunderstanding can carry a lot more weight when it comes through one of those channels. And there's distance. There's no, there's a, the Gottman Institute has a great, and I love tools and tricks, but there's an app that you can put on your phone and and there's all these like rituals of connection and all those things. Mm -hmm. And some people without the physical, you know, touching of the shoulder or something to reconnect you, it can be more and more difficult with something like a a, a wrong word or a slip of a finger or. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I think it's also just some of these things can expose cracks in a relationship very quickly. And I think like, (laughs) I don't have the data or anything, but there were a lot of reports around like spiking divorce rates in the pandemic, right? There were a lot of people who only after being forced to spend all day inside with each other found (laughs) out who each other actually were. And that's a very interesting piece. I think Natalie and I are good in that we can have long ranging, like six hour conversation on every topic, like just like this, we'll just debate things. And some of her family members just giggle because they're like, do you guys ever not fight? And we're like, we're not fighting. We're having like a laughing because that's like, everybody (laughs) thinks me and my wife, but we're very intellectually competitive. I would yeah. call it, like we want to see the other per, that, that perspective or we want to be like, why is that? And it's outsiders. I think it feels challenging, but I think if you're mm-hmm. in an academic or if you have been in an academic kind of arena, that's very natural. And to mm-hmm. people that haven't, it, it seems very competitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we love it. To us, it, it feels very natural and fun. To some others, it feels like this, <laughs> uncomfortable. This, this is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. uh, and mm. I, I totally get it for some people. Say you're a lawyer or something like that, and of all course. you do all day is argue. And then okay. you come home and you do that again with your spouse. Ooh, okay, maybe I would have a bit more of an issue with it if that was my profession. I like the, the idea of academic competitiveness. I think that brings pretty true for me too. Where that's exciting. I find that <laughs> there's, some, there's some cool research that Adam Grant presented in his book, A Give and Take about what people who are facing burnout should do as a strategy to actually combat it. Have you ever read his stuff? He's really I ha- great. I haven't, no, but that yeah. you're not the first person to mention that. So, Yeah, he's fabulous. Uh, he's a professor at Wharton School of Business, which I have to competitively disavow any fondness for Wharton, but he is fabulous. It's a great school. I shouldn't say anything like that. One of the most counterintuitive things in that whole book is like, a lot of people fight burnout by doing more. And like the thing that's really interesting is so long as it's not directly linked to what you're doing, 
and you find something that you're passionate about, it can give you more energy than you put into it. And so he was like, some of the pieces that were really interesting about that were like, oh, you're busting your ass all day in your finance job. And you wear in like volunteering at a homeless shelter at night and people get energy back. Yeah. <laughs> and like I find that I get energy back from Natalie as opposed to like these discussions draining me. I find that they're, they're sure. invigorating. Yeah. So me, too. me yeah. too. And, and I think everybody should define that however they, they want, but <laughs> it's just inter- interesting again, how that observation or the optics look versus the actual conversation. So you're an entrepreneur, uh, you're running this company that's doing great in the community, helping a lot of people, I think solving a really important problem. Is there any other things outside of that where you try to give back to your community? You're already doing a lot inside of your job, but is there things that you participate in that, that help you? I don't know, the sense of what I'm trying to tease out with this question is that we, I think we know that giving without expecting return brings us happiness. And so I'm trying to understand how people put that into their lives. So that's a long winded question, but. And I think giving without, without expecting return is also the fastest path to return, which is crazy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. (laughs) One thing that like I, I, I was, I'm very frustrated by education, but ultimately that sense of giving back is the thing that that I realized over taking this year out. That's what it was for me is the thing that drives me. I love all yeah. the entrepreneur stuff. I like making money, quantitative metrics, all that stuff. That's fun. But the qualitative relationships that I build as, as a teacher and the impact that I can have on people's lives is it's what fills me. Yeah. So let me tell you about a few things that we do as an organization and that I do personally. Awesome. Um, one thing we layered in on top of our clearly an impact focused um, mission and drive for the company is that there's an organization in Toronto called the Upside Foundation of Canada. Yep. And the Upside Foundation allows Canadian startups to basically pledge a portion of equity to charity. So that the moment you end up selling your company, whichever charity you picked gets a check. Like same day I get a check, BC Children's Hospital and Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto will both get checks. Basically, they will get money at the same time I do. And sorry, can you what was that again? If an entrepreneur wants to sign up and, and become part of that? Super simple. You just go to Upside Foundation. Somebody Upside could just Foundation. Me. Yeah, Upside Foundation of Canada. I think it's UpsideFoundation.ca. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Thank you. Um, and they can talk to me. They could about it. But what ends up happening is that you join a community of very much like-minded entrepreneurs who also think the same way about it that you do. Whether they're in fintech, healthcare, anything doesn't matter. Education, tech. Everybody's got like a different little cause that they're competing for, or they just pledge and say, I'll figure out who I'm going to give it to later. But the community aspect of that, that filters out people that are like, yeah, totally unwilling to be like that. Wow. Great people. Wow. Like really one of the best decisions I made starting like in this entire journey was joining that bar, bar none, like great connections, great everything. So that part's really good. I volunteer you know, I, I'm on the board for my high school's alumni association. That's pretty fun. And that's just an outlet for me to be a bit creative and thinking about like events and engagement and stuff. It's pretty good. And then I volunteer with a couple of uh, charities in Vancouver. Most notably, the one I'm most involved with is called the West Coast Kids Cancer Foundation. And I help out with them from time to time whenever I can with like in-person volunteering. Yeah. And then the thing that I probably do a lot of that anybody who knows me has probably got, I'm always happy to do it. And people are often surprised that I make it a priority as I like just to connect people where it makes sense. And so whether it's there on the job hunt or trying to find investors or anything. Or, or, or want, want interviews for podcasts. (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. Oh, you want some more guests? I could probably find a few for you. You making the time to come on. I really appreciate that. It's worth it. It's worth it. And then people go and I'm quite thrilled to be helpful when somebody shoots me a note. And again, you should never expect anything in return, but more often than not, it comes back in a really good way when you do that kind of thing. It allows you to maintain some of your looser connections a bit better. And yeah, I think that there's a huge amount of power in doing that and people consider it a chore when in fact it's an opportunity. Can I ask you a specific question? I'm thinking a lot of people would love to, a lot of people I think would love to help people go in and see with cancer and support them. I personally, so I can speak to my, my, my own position, my grandmother died of cancer. So there's, I I think a lot of people might have some like embedded trauma of the whole experience that kind of Mm -hmm. resurfaces. Is there any sort of way that you try to mentally or emotionally prepare approaching that? 
you could potentially go and see somebody who's a child and, and then all of a sudden now they're gone and you've built this relationship over a period of time. How do you go about approaching that? Like, Yeah, it, it never gets easy to hear about that kind of thing and to see that kind of thing. I'd say that probably for a lot of people, they're better off finding like a lighter weight way of engaging because there's just no there's no sidestepping that trauma. Like it happens and you have to just deal with it. And it is a lot sometimes it is a lot sometimes. And one thing that I've noticed a lot, and I don't think that everybody would be cut out to do what I do. And that's not being braggadocious or anything. I don't think you are. I think uh, like me, for instance, I'm too, I just, I get too emotionally, like I would get too emotionally connected. I feel, and I don't mean that like that you don't, I just mean, yeah, I don't know how to word this, but it's just a weird topic. I do something and maybe it's just, pursuing what I've what I'm doing right now is enough of a signal where people figure out that I can take it and maybe it's being raised by a physician and a nurse where this is the type of thing that I heard about as a kid all the time too right. like the tough conversations in the medical space that could be could very much be a huge piece of it for yeah, how I'm I never even think, thought about that but yeah that could be um but I remember vividly somebody collapsed and was coughing up blood and I was helping my mom treat this guy like in the lobby of, a, of a, an office building one day. I remember that as a kid. And it was like, give me your sweater. We'll use it as a pillow. And I took my sweater off and we put it under this guy's head and there wow. was blood everywhere. And that was just like normal for my mom. When I, when I busted my eyebrow open on the rugby field, my mom came over and stitched me up. And the coach said that most mothers come over screaming at him about their kid being hurt. And he like he couldn't think about the game for the next 10 minutes because he was so thrown off by my mom's calmness in this entire moment of her son bleeding all over the place on the field. But to go all the way back to that, I do something, whether it's just some open signal or some intuitive piece, everybody I meet that has a story about a medical trauma, which everyone has one. Yep they all feel for some reason comfortable telling me about it. And it's a very interesting thing that I've noticed is if I go somewhere back in the days when we went somewhere and give a talk or something, or I pitched at an event or something, people will come up to me digitally or in person afterward and tell me about their most traumatic experience in, in this medical thing that they went through with their family member. And it, it's stuff that became like the moment of death to like what it's like to have to bathe your own father, like like a guy bathing his own father. I, I do that with how, my grandfather. Like, it's a strange role reversal of being like my grandfather was the guy that I looked up to and and had this hero sort of thing. And to see the loss of a hero is so hard. And just the frailty and 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 the embarrassment on both people's sides. Totally. And for some reason, strangers will come up to me and tell me this. And there's a funny thing about intimacy and privacy and how this all works. And that probably for them, they see me. This is my assumption. Here's a guy that probably gets it and I'll probably also never see again. Yeah. And he'll yeah. probably never meet my friends and family. Mm. And that gives them a sense of comfort where they can be very, it's like seeing a therapist almost where you can feel very comfortable disclosing this really personal, like harmful, traumatic story to somebody because it's probably not going to come back to you again. And I've been the recipient of these stories endlessly since I started this company and I'm okay with it. Honestly, like it, yeah, it, it no, can be sure. a lot some days. So we talked about transitions uh, or boundaries between work and home, but what about you personally? You know, somebody tells you that story. How are you? I, I'm not saying shirk it, but just in terms of energy, you have to find energy and you're in the space and you're really trying mm-hmm. to solve problems, but it's a difficult space to hear these conversations. And so right. is there some way that you, yeah, you find a transition? Oh, I think a lot of it comes back to like, things that make you feel comfortable. I, I, for a guy as busy as I am, I watch an embarrassing amount of TV. Like sometimes if I have work that doesn't require a huge amount of the CPU to be running, I'll just put on something hilarious in the background and have a chuckle. Any specific uh, show that you're watching right now? Right now, so much RuPaul's Drag Race. It is awesome. I love that show. So those people are the most talented people on the planet. It is completely nuts what they do. And I'm so enthralled by it. It is so funny. Everything about it. I love it. And then just a lot of other funny shows like and movies and whatever. And uh, sometimes dramas, but I find that I sometimes do have to psych myself up to watch certain shows. What was the one, the movie 
I wanted to watch it really badly, but I could never get myself psyched. To, oh, Spotlight. It was the one, I think it was called Spotlight. It was the one where they, the news team uncovered the allegations of child abuse in the Catholic Church. It was like oh, Leah yeah. Schreiber and the guy who plays the Hulk, Mark Ruffalo. And I, I was like, have to look into it. I can't watch that until I'm like in a, in a place where I can like, cause that's just traumatic stuff. Yeah. My wife always says like, I, I end up watching, I have a combination of these very lighthearted things and then these very like heavy things. One of the yeah. things that I recently watched was uh, a surviving death. That's what it was called. And one of the things is it had like these stories about patients that had described things when they were clinically dead. If you look at the, 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 the time of life and they interviewed the doctors and stuff, they were clinically dead. There was nothing. They were flatlined. But they were able to, with detail, describe what was happening in the room. Talking about the tools and things like that. Do, does anybody ever get into stories about in that space? Has anybody ever told you any of these stories or, or have you come across any of these stories in your... Your I'll be honest, like nothing, nothing particularly memorable okay. in that yeah. space. It it's, totally it's, changed me. Like I'm very analytical yeah. about it, like black and white, but this having doctors and having people that were very clearly atheists and then have them be transformed. was a compelling thing. Now compelling in documentaries is it, it depends on how good of a narrative and a storyteller you are, but it was, it was a fascinating thing that kind of stuck in my head for a while, or it still is. So I, in my head. I will say one thing and it's like less spiritual and more like psychological in my opinion is that I think that one of a, another big misconception about the experience of providing care and being a caregiver is that the caregiving has like a finite beginning and end. Like, I think that is a very, it doesn't start at diagnosis and it doesn't end at death. In my opinion, those two things right. are merely points along the journey. I think like you start taking care of someone long before you really know that they're unwell and, and, and that provision and those norms are grounded in like the previous moments, even like a flu. Yeah. If, if you're talking about like a kid who gets cancer, at like age 11 or something that there was caregiving that was happening before the kid was born, when they've been sick at various little moments that then informed what the next progression of that disease would look like. And then you continue to care for that person once they're gone. And you, it's, whether it's something tangible, like arranging for funeral and what you do with the remains, or whether it's just that, like, Every year, it, like their birthday creeps up on you and you go, oh man, yeah. I think that caregiving is ubiquitous. Everyone's doing it all the time, whether they realize it or not. And it is one of those things that is like so fundamental to the human experience. And the thing that's very interesting now is that we have so much separation that you don't realize how ubiquitous it actually is. There's yeah. so many people providing care and you just don't know that it's going on. And yeah. so we've lost our ability. It crops up and people are like, I don't even know what to do. Yeah. I suspect that people knew what to do 40 years ago. I suspect they really knew what to do. I, I don't think people know what to do anymore. I also suspect that we didn't know what to do. So then we knew what to do. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> right. is, yes. is, is we, we, we didn't have the best resource or we weren't a doctor. And, and so as we, as we get better with research and science and information is overload and Google searches will give you 17 different ways that are all opposing. I think it, it's become too complicated for us to just trust our judgment and try to do what's best, especially people that have gone to university or kind of gone down that, that quantifiable post-secondary education path. People end up becoming consumers of information and then wanting to use that to fit that into their life like it's some perfect puzzle piece and mm -hmm. instead of just trying to understand themselves and who they are and really spend time on that and then figure out whether or not that speaks to them even if the research suggests otherwise and i think we've definitely lost we've lost that piece of that self-assuredness to make decisions and do what's best intuitively or empathetically yeah i think we need to start Thinking about how there are lots of things that the lack of the empathetic approach has really robbed us of just simple trust. Yep. What's the status of trust in the world? And and that's part of the reason why I wanted to 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 do this podcast. And in the way in the format in which I do it, see behind the invisible curtain and want us to somehow connect to what are the things that people struggle with outside of that. And I feel we can niche down too much because objectively, quantitatively, we're going to grow an audience bigger. I get the reasons why, but I've been trying to stay the course of qualitative over quantitative. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been an interesting journey in itself. How do you... Okay, who is one person that inspires you daily? Let's look at at home. Is there somebody or in your personal life? Is there some person that you look at, look towards and they inspire you? I'm very grateful to look to my parents for two sides of who I ended up becoming. And I, I think inspiration is... 
an interesting term for it, but I think that's true. I'd say like, like my dad is, I was lucky to get like an ounce of his intellect, whatever like brain power I can be thought of as having, it came straight from that dude. He is a, a bloody genius. He's usually the quietest guy in the room, but it's because he's basically absorbing everything and doing probably doing math in his brain for fun or something like that. <laughs> big John, he just, he, he's the story about my dad. I tell to give them a sense of how brilliant he is, is I was doing calculus homework in high school integral calculus and I didn't understand a question. I walked up to him and he did it in pen without consulting a resource. He just pulled out a pen and did it. And I asked him when the last time he had done it. And he said it was 30 years ago, the last time he did calculus. Wow. And so I was just blown away by that. And then my mom has an outrageous ability on the EQ side of things. If I get the two cues, my dad is I and my mom is E and she can walk into any room and be everybody's favorite person. And I don't say that lightly. She literally can just win anybody over. And she's also got a good gift of knowing other, I think part and parcel of that is just being able to understand other people. One of the best things she did for me as a kid, this is going to sound so bad, but it's so awesome, is at one one day I came home from school and she just said, she sat me down and said, Tom, why are your grades not like a plus why are they why are you not getting straight a's and i'm like, i don't know what do you want from me like i'm in like grade five or something and <laughs> she's just like the thing is they did the standardized test at the school and you were like at the top of the class and yet you're getting like c's and b's like what's that about and i go oh really and she goes yeah i think if you just apply yourself you're gonna get a's no problem and i went oh okay i went and started getting a's and it was no issue there wasn't even a test like she totally just <laughs> manipulated the living hell out of me but she knew like this kid is just holding back for some reason. What's he doing? And she just knew she could trick me and yeah. it worked. And I like, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm actually good at school. Okay. I'll just be good at school it, now on. It's amazing how much power there is in a belief of something. Mm -hmm. I always, I'm always amazed by uh, how far a belief will take you. There's a lot of people that are very intellectually gifted that maybe aren't in a similar situation, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of where they're at in life by the quantitative measures. And I think a lot of that has to do with self-limiting beliefs. Is there a way that you, do you set goals? Do you, how, how do you like try to per, per, pursue those self-limiting beliefs or dig them out to, so that they don't get in the way of growing your company? I'm not like a big prescriptive goal setter. Like that's not okay. the way that I've approached life. I yep. tend to just say, go try something and be really good at it. And that'll sort the rest out. And so if that were defined as a goal. It's a, defined it as a value. And and to your point of the questions that you asked before about what kind of camp would I put my school in? And I talked about characters and values. That would definitely be one of the values I'd want to instill in my, 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 my <laughs> children is that you... Uh, go and try something and you do your absolute best. Not Don't bullshit yourself. Do your best and work towards it and try to provide value for somebody and other people. And then if you want to keep doing that, then keep doing that. And if you don't, then go do something else and provide value for people. And that's why I like the entrepreneurial journey in general, because if you're not providing value, it, it just won't be successful. Right. Now, having said all that, I think that there is a tremendous amount of value in imagining a future and not necessarily like a prescriptive future, but more like a world in which you believe might exist down the exactly. road. And how, yeah. do you, how do you fit into that? One of the things I think about right now a lot is do we think that in the future brands will be thinking it's a good idea to spend millions of dollars a year on Facebook and Google ads? I, I hope not. I think that there's a world in the future where we stop thinking about things like that. And that informs strategies around how you build and like future-proof a company that you're building. Do yeah. you believe that we will have some way to fundamentally restore trust across the board from a societal basis? Or will we have to start fractioning off a little bit and like becoming a bit more insular, like in bubbles of trust? I don't know which of those things is going to happen. But I think if you start to think about the world in five, 10, 30-year chunks, where do you think the world is going to end up in 30 years? If you can really be diligent about trying to imagine what that could be, where like the things that are starting out today as little signals are turning into like full-blown trends, that is a really powerful ability. Change is scary for a lot of people, I feel like. Mm -hmm. How do you get right. uh, something into their household that then records data and allows them to the people that need it the most to adoption? So everything, if it's rooted in transparency, has a way of like showing up uh, down the road. But a few things that we've done that are really tangible 
around building trust. Like uh, I say, for example, if anybody really wants to know who I am as a founder of this company, there are a few podcasts where I'm pretty raw and open like this one, where if you just went and invested a bit of time, you would understand who I am as a person. And the DNA of these startups is intrinsically linked to the founders. Hopefully people can get a sense of that. We've done a lot of like really hands-on work with the first couple families that were users of Blue. So like we did a big white glove effort. Like last thing you want to, it's one thing if you send out a photo sharing app and it bugs out on your users and you're like, oh, it's a bug in our system could stop a cancer patient from getting to an appointment. And that's the type of thing that don't take lightly at all. We were very hands-on in the first few. Another couple things though that are important, we actively want to know as little data, personal data about patients as we can get our hands on. So we're very clear about that. We did a lot of work on figuring out what the appropriate mascot for the company would be. And Blue was originally a a female robot named Caroline. And I came across some research with my co-founder and just the narratives around gender equality and AI is a really sprawling topic right now. And the brief history is that over the history of AI, people have given female personas to all these entities all the way back to a Star Trek computer and as far forward as Siri and Alexa and these types of things. And effectively, it enforces a narrative around the subjugation of women and reinforces that around like young boys and everything that are feeling quite liberated to lob obscenities at their Alexa in their house and like imprint that in their daily lives. And for us, like the majority of caregivers are women. So we were like, Caroline was great. Everybody, Caroline, got to go. We got to get rid of that one. And we came up with Blue, which is this friendly looking herding robot dog. And the whole idea is to have a, a gender neutral, very friendly face for the company where like subjugation of a herding dog is pretty well accepted. I don't think anybody's really crazy going crazy in animal rights about a border collie like herding sheep. I think that's totally okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so t- it's it's such a tough uh, position for anything that yeah. seems robot- robotic or anything like that. That's a hard thing as a company to 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 roll yeah. out for sure. And then the last piece is that we actually offer blue through partnerships with nonprofits and hospitals. So a family using Blue would get it from their local hospital or like a nonprofit that supports them. So in doing that, we confer a certain level of trust upon this person such that when they send out invitations to be part of the more private experience of Blue, people like they know who this person is and they also see, oh, BC Children's Hospital is involved. They were starting a pilot with BC Children's relatively soon. And that gives them a certain sense of this is legit. And uh, given that this reputable institution is involved, also legit. And then around certain smaller moments of care that are more applicable to a broader audience, it allows you to engage people in a way that has up to now been impossible. So one big thing that we looked at a lot is that the it, it just Google GoFundMe fraud and it is depressing. It is so sad. The number of people who pretend to have cancer and raise like a million oh, bucks. Oh shit! It's like really I didn't awful. Even think about it. It's That's really terrible. awful. And so while we tend to operate in the smaller like, how do we get like this kid a new pair of hockey skates because his dad lost his job when he got cancer or something and he still yeah. wants to play sports. Now, if we wanted to open that up to a broader audience who might say, man, I remember being a kid and that was so important to me. I'll throw 20 bucks on this person who I've never met their pair of skates. If it has the BC children's name and logo on it, you suddenly feel a lot better. That money's going where it's supposed to go. So we're trying to create those central themes of truth by really attaching blue to some of those more unquestionable holders of authenticity. People don't regularly go around saying, yeah, but what is the American Cancer Society really up to? (laughs) (laughs) There's a a lot less suspicion around that type of incident. For sure. I didn't even, I I wouldn't have even thought about, I don't know, maybe this is just because of my rose-colored glasses, but I would have never even thought about that. That's terrible. It happens a Um, lot. A lot. Yeah. And so it's tough. We don't want to compete with GoFundMe. I think they hold a very special place for getting like a big, broad audience involved in a really huge problem. So we don't want Blue to be used to pay for a surgery in the States for 200K. Like that's not what Blue's for. All the accompanying moments of care that are like just made a bit easier by putting somebody's time or treasure against that challenge, paying rent this month or getting coffees while you're at the hospital. 
these types of things are solved by money, not by time. And we have to accept that. So we open up a little bit of blue as, as a financial means for support. And it's been quite useful so far. That's wonderful. And for anybody that would want to look at maybe potentially partnering with Blue? Sure. The easiest thing for them to do is just go to our website, caregiversupport.tech slash Blue, if you want to skip right to the part where we talk about Blue. And then there are options there to submit your name and, and we'll get right in touch with you right away. Awesome. And then just the closing question now, how would you like people's lives to change as a result of your interactions at work, at home, and online? I think the fundamental... Uh, through line of this entire conversation, although I don't think it's been totally said, is like to completely rethink how we approach living as a community. I think we got stuck in the notion that a community is a place and a community is more of a feeling. And I think that's the complete central piece is that if I need to depend on my friends and my friends are around the world, so be it. We are at a place now where the technology is there to enable that type of experience. And if we can get to a point where helping your friend who lives around the world feels as natural as helping your next door neighbor, I think we'll have done our job. And that's the piece to make that frictionless environment such that things like distance and scheduling and and all these other solvable problems fade away. That's what we want. That's wonderful. And I think that's uh, that's going to be a great world to live in. Hope If people want to engage with you in your work, where can they find you online? Sure. We try to keep most of the endings of our social accounts as support by blue. So on Instagram, support by blue, Facebook, support by blue. LinkedIn is where I'm most active. And actually there were caregiver support technologies, just because that's a bit more of a LinkedIn vibe. Yeah. I, I try to get on podcasts as often as I can because I, I think it's fun. This is one of those escapes that didn't get said. Podcasts and believe it or not, I love scrubbing a toilet. So that's a oh, weird yeah, one. Oh yeah, I didn't I, I yeah, that was one of the ones we never got <laughs> we never got to, which is yeah, what is one household chore that you that you oh, like? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's I, awesome. I either I either want things that turn my brain to 11 or turn my brain to zero. And those are the two options. So my wife watches all this TikTok videos that have people cleaning like the before and after because it just feels like you're getting <laughs> such a sense of control over clean, like things that are clean. Immediate, tangible, visible results is right. really great once in a while when you live in an intangible space. Yeah. And in the world of entrepreneurship, Tom, I really want to thank you so much for your time. And there's so much to chew on for listeners. And I really appreciate you spending the time to chat chat with us today. Thank you, Sean. Tons of fun. All right. Take care. Hello, everyone. Sean again. I just wanted to take this time and say thank you. You have helped this podcast reach growth-minded humans on five continents, 26 countries, and 128 cities around the world. Without people like you listening and sharing, this would not be possible. If you have enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts? These reviews really help me to reach more listeners and more guests. Life in today's world can be hectic. I hope you stay healthy, play more, work hard, love deeply. And as always, be bold, be kind, be you, be human. See you next week.